Hey folks, welcome back to the Uticast. This is episode number 56, and this week we are speaking to a very good friend of mine, the brilliant and fascinating Vincent Petronio, the head chef at the Taylor and the Cook. This week's episode of the Uticast is brought to you by our sponsor, the Adirondack Scenic Railroad. Did you miss last Friday's beer and wine train? That's a mistake on your part. Luckily for you, there's another beer and wine event on August 12th. It's less than a month away, folks. What's that you say? You don't like to drink? That's fine. The Adirondack Scenic Railroad has events for the whole family, not just the beer and wine train. So check out AdirondackRR.com or go visit them at Utica's beautiful Union Station down on 321 Main Street. Adirondack Scenic Railroad, it's more than just a train ride. All right, let's get on with the show. I am the host and producer, Sam Pamelaro, and I'm joined by host and producer, Kevin Sullivan. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey, just uh, busy doing a lot of producing. I'm a producer now, so, you know, I've got a lot of producing to do. You have an EP credit on this, right? I would imagine. If, I... we, if, we, if this was a movie, we would If have... this was anywhere besides In Your Brain, I think I would probably get the producing credit. <laughs> I would have to say. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, our interview for this week, uh, uh, Vincent Petroni, uh, Petronio, I said his name right three times the whole time. We're you were saying the... that before we started, yeah, too. Like, Petronio. I gotta get this name, gotta get yeah. this name, yeah, go. Uh, he just walked out the door. What a nice guy. I like Vince a lot. He's yes. a, I love, and maybe it's because you and, you and I have spent so much time in the restaurant world, in the hospitality world, uh, that we have natural conversation with people, uh, who work it's in interesting world. to be able to get somebody's perspective who knows enough about that world but has it in a little bit of a different way and get their like take and input on it. It's always interesting because when you work in an industry like that, or you know, like any yeah. industry, for a certain set amount of time, you have a natural basic level of interest in it. Yeah. So you can always go back and discuss that, and it's like a common ground with people. Uh-huh. So even if you don't know them, you can get in and have deep conversations like that. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, so we'll get into a little bit more about Vincent before we get to the interview. Just a couple uh, house cleaning uh, segments to go over with with the lads out there. We we'll talk to you about the best way to clean sinks, the best way to clean floors. We got all sorts still, of house cleaning. Our house is a mess right now. I gotta tell you, I it's not good. We're getting there. Tough weekend. It's been a long. I'm I'm tired, man. Uh, but first, let's let's move on first. Uh, so a couple weeks back, I teased uh, Chris Talgo is coming on to the show. Uh, I spoke to Chris Talgo a couple of days ago, uh, and we're gonna push back. Until after Memorial Day, Labor okay. Day. What's the next one? I don't know. Labor Day is the next one. Labor, until after Labor Day, but yeah. uh, Labor Day is the one that makes it fall. Memorial Day is the one that makes it summer. Yeah. Uh, but he will be on the show. He does want to come on. We're just trying to find time for that. So if you got busy real, guys, he's a he's very busy and hard yeah. to get down. Um, and then also uh, we we had Justin Parkinson on last week, and uh, I felt like he didn't adequately sell the excitement that I have. For the uh, the Franklin Square film series, that yeah, he really in. kind of buried the lead on that. Did That's not, gonna be. Uh, he sprung that one on me, and I wasn't ready for it. And I and I want to tell you, this is uh, we do a lot of events, and I know this seems like kind of a a weird event for me to get excited for, but this is an I, no, this is gonna be good. I this is a very uh, God take a shot. This is a very Brooklyn thing. We used to this is they used to do free movies in the park at McCarran Park in Brooklyn. 
and uh, I went to do Top Gun there and Jurassic Park and uh, Bad Boys, and it was awesome. So much fun uh, to watch a movie in that setting with the community. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really excited for Jurassic Park on, on the 27th. It's uh, I think it's going to be it's a cool little test run right at the end of summer, right? To do one like yeah. so the 27th is the first and every other Wednesday yeah. we'll do three and Bite Bakery has been like instrumental in making sure this could all happen. They're going to stay open late to get like having all their, uh, you know, their drinks, all the delicious like foods and treats that they sell over there. And it's going to be a nice test run to see, but I think this can really grow into something because I've always been jealous of communities that have like a community movie outside somewhere or something. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a really cool thing. I'm excited for this one. Uh, so July 27th, uh, in the Franklin Square lot there next to Bite Bakery. Yeah. Uh, Jurassic Park, one of my all-time favorite movies. Not my favorite movie. We'll talk about that later. That's also another thing about this film series. Like the movies that are playing are probably like number two and then number one. Like your two biggest all time we'll, favorite influential movies. We'll talk about that at a later date. I am very dun, excited. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I'm very excited about uh, Jurassic Park. Uh, so actually what I'm going to do next week, and I can tease it here because I've already spoken to him and he's coming over tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to sit down and talk to our, our, our great filmmaker friend and good friend of the show. Uh, Tom Knudsen, uh, TK, he's going to come talk extended about movies for next Probably about the biggest behind-the-scenes power player that I, there is in the entire Made Utica Empire. Oh, TK dude. just moves in silence. The kid kills it. TK is one of my favorite people to talk movies about, so next week he's going to be on the show, and we're going to go deep into movies because I, um, I have a lot of stuff about movies we can talk about. So, uh, And other than that, I guess the only other thing to bring up is if you can hear this podcast, you can hear that my voice... Is a little different today. It's because I am coming down with the sickness. I have the sickness. You are down with the sickness. I am down uh, with the sickness. Should we make that the new bumper no. music on the show? Down with no. the sickness? Never. Uh, Never. I'll quit the podcast. I'll quit the podcast. <laughs> it's very rare. First time for everything. First time for everything. Uh, but yeah, and uh, I don't, I don't, I get sick maybe twice a year. Uh, I don't like getting sick in the summer. It's crummy. No, it's such a waste of nice days. It's a waste of nice days. Uh, and I also, I don't like taking days off. Do you take days off when you're sick? Uh, I try not to. I feel I feel better if I go somewhere and do something. Like, if I get out, if I'm not, I mean, if I'm, like, really, really debilitatingly sick, sure, I'll stay home. But for the most part, I'm better if I can go and pretend I'm not sick yeah. and then just come home and, like, crash hard and sleep for 12 hours. And as the world knows, and again, Kevin and I do not support this <clears throat> in our current jobs and establishments because we love them very much. But sick days are for days that you're not really sick. <laughs> <laughs> like, actually, you're probably not even like I've still got that that leftover thing in me where it's like, well, maybe I'll save this sick day in case I mean I can't call them when I'm actually sick. <laughs> you can't call them when I'm really sick. What a waste of a sick day. Um, but yeah, no, but no sick days from podcasting. Uh, I'm out here every day. Where... I hope there's. I hope the day comes. We keep doing doing this show. Inevitably, there will come a day where one of us is like so you know sick with like the flu or something where it's really shows and it's just going to be like the flu game like Jordan's flu game where you decide you give the best podcast of your life with 102 fever blowing your nose <laughs> that, that'd be really funny to see like you just snap out of it right when the mic goes right? on you're just like oh, I'm so sick it's like welcome back to the show provide riveting content riveting content well <laughs> that requires some other things too that I'm not always on I, flu game flu game this is today's not going to be the flu game today's just a regular show and I'm going to fight through uh, not feeling all that great all right, folks, let's get into the uh, show proper. So let's take a quick break, and we will return. See you on the other side. Yeah, man.
You know, uh, sort of tying in to the discussion we were having at the break about the uh, our Franklin Square film series, which is uh, free for all, mind you. Not a free for all. That's something different. Oh, it may become a yeah, free for all. It may be a yeah. free for all. Uh, but Cliff Montoni back on the show again this week. Welcome back, buddy. Hi, everybody. Thank uh, you for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. And you have brought up a point that you read an article. Was it a Vanity Fair or Variety? Was it? Uh, movie tickets are at their most expensive price ever, averaging at eight dollars and seventy-five cents. Uh, but as you mentioned, if you live in New York City, you're looking at like thirteen dollars for That's a movie crazy. ticket. Yeah, I haven't paid eight dollars and change for a movie ticket in a very long time. Uh, it's funny. I used to, when I was living in New York, take a shot again. Uh, I used to go to the movies all the time. I like to go to the movies. Uh, that was like something that me and my my girlfriend in New York would do all the time. And then you start to think about the actual cost of going to a movie. Yeah, it's like all right, so I'm paying thirteen bucks for me, and then thirteen bucks for her. Mm-hmm. That's twenty six plus. Uh, I'm gonna stop at the the Walgreens or the Dwayne Reed and get myself some candy. So there's another six bucks. <coughs> cheap. <coughs> cheap, all right? Yeah, yeah how about it? Uh, then get maybe a popcorn and a soda. There's another uh, $37. Yeah. So you're talking about what like a $200 at? night out, I think, really. If you, I think the math might be a bit off there. How much was your day? How much was your day? I fall asleep for a no. second. Why don't we get to $200? Uh, no, but I really, it's like if you walk out of a movie and you paid $50 plus for you and someone else to go see a movie and do all the accoutrements that come with it, yeah. and that movie stinks... It's kind of a downer, right? Like it's well. That's why I think there's something to be said for secondhand cinema, like in the sense that you know, like this Franklin Square film series. You can go see Jurassic Park, go see Jaws. A lot of times when you watch a movie, if you're watching a movie at home, it's something you've already seen or the people have already seen. Movies have a rewatchability, so I think for a lower price to be able to go see a movie you've already seen before or for free, for free. If you come down the Made Nudica event. I think that's a pretty good deal because the movies is about the experience, not necessarily just seeing one of the ten movies that are out this week. Yeah, it's almost impossible to keep up, and I think that that damages it a lot, too. Like, it takes away how special it is to go do something like that. Because, That's a good point. Like, oh, I've got five movies I want to see just this month, and there's no way I'm going to spend the $250 to go do that. Maybe it's always been uh, it's always been this way. Uh, I feel like movies, especially movies in movie theaters, pass me by very quickly as I get older. Like, yeah. I forget that movies are in the movie theaters exactly. now sometimes. Yeah. Unless it's something I'm really, really gassed up for. Like, if I'm... Like, I knew that Captain America movie was coming out a while beforehand. But, like, sometimes I just forget. I'm like, that movie's still out or has not yet come out? Do you guys also quantify things by uh, per month of Netflix? So it's like, this movie is two and a half months of Netflix. Like, that's a tough sell. That's a real hard sell to go see that. It's, yeah. Well, the, the, the price point of it, I think. Yeah, so it's like, about, I can right? go to one oh, okay, movie, yeah, yeah. or yeah. I can pay for five months of Netflix. <laughs> I feel like Netflix has generally always got trash movies. Netflix, I feel like their movie selection is not that good. Kind of the dirty secret about Netflix is that um, their television selection is really good. They have a lot of, like, good yeah, documentaries yeah. and TV stuff and original stuff. But their movie, their movies have suffered on yeah. account of the other up, the other things going up. I yeah. would say it's all about the originals for yeah. sure. Uh, Cliff, you've been on the show a couple of times recently, uh, so first, welcome back. As I mentioned already, uh, Cliff, I'm not feeling good today, so I'm going to ask you to fix me. What am I? I'm I'm not feeling. I'm a little feeling under the weather. What do you do when you're feeling under the weather? What do I do? You're when the I'm smartest guy I know. Under the weather, I don't know. I don't get sick. You don't get sick? No. That you mean you don't I get had a sick. feeling that was going to be some sort of insult. <laughs> <song. laughs> Cliff Montoni doesn't get sick. No, I'm playing. I'm playing. No, I know. I'm just joking. So uh, when I really do have a method, of course, um, I buy one of the really large containers of Gatorade. Yes. And I carry it everywhere. 
and I'll drink one or two of those and just make sure I sleep a lot. Mm. And that's it. Like, really, just fluids and sleep and everything I'm similar, else is witchcraft. But with orange juice. Orange yeah. juice. I drink a lot yep. of orange juice when I'm sick. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Cliff, thank you. I didn't know you were sick. I'm... You can't tell in my you voice? Right? I'm losing, like, the... Um, I got just a low register in my voice. I'm ah, I just liked it a little. Uh, I you're doing it for me. And, Cliff, you actually recorded... I haven't yet to cut it this week because I'm the laziest producer of all the producers <laughs> on this show. Um... But you haven't, uh, what we're calling it so far, the Untitled Cliff Montoni Podcasting Project, number one. Yeah, we're going to have to work on that one. Yeah, well, yeah. we'll have to come I up with I think you something. should call the whole show that with the number one. <laughs> on this week's episode of the Cliff Montoni Podcasting Experiment Project, number one. Yeah. <laughs> it's the longest name in history. Uh, so I'll cut that up this week, and then I'll release it. So if the folks just can't get enough of Cliff Montoni... <laughs> It's a cliff-heavy week. Yeah, that's great. Uh, we don't we don't have a whole bunch a uh, whole bunch of stories to cover this week, but let's start with uh, one that you brought up to me, Kev. This is uh, you said you, this was in the, you got you found it on Reddit, the front page of the world, as Word. I like to call it. It's true. Uh, but this is a Guardian article, and the the idea is uh, that millennials that that word we talk about occasionally on this show, which mm-hmm. I feel sort of uncomfortable talking about, makes me feel dirty. Yeah, I, it does I, I, make you feel a little dirty, right? Mm-hmm. Uncomfortable. Does anybody have the age range for that? Like we qualify, no, right? Yes, we, we do. do. Yeah, we, we do. It's like I, I think feel it's like people close. born like eighty to year two thousand. Okay. The mm. tail tail end of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. We're the old guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we're some of the oldest millennials you can be. We'll still be yeah. a millennial. Okay, yeah. Cool. We're OG right. millennials. Right. right? right. Like, yeah. Those kids don't know. Um, I'm disgusted with all this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Guardian this week had an article, uh, and this is in. Uh, Pounds, so I'm not going to convert it because I'm bad at converting. Millennials, it looks like, will spend 44,000 pounds more on rent by the time they reach 30 than their baby boomer equivalents, uh, according to a report that underlies the struggling younger generations fa- uh, struggles younger generations face uh, to save for a deposit on a house. Now, I got to tell you, I'm a 30 year old man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've worked a lot of jobs in my life. I have never even once, even thought about the concept of buying a house like not in any more than it'd be like oh it'd be nice to have a house someday yeah but the idea of buying a house to me is daunting yeah um i don't know what the conversion you have the conversion I have, pulled up it's this? uh yeah it's roughly fifty eight thousand dollars jesus yeah so right we're paying so the average person by the time they're rent. 30 paid fifty eight thousand dollars more in rent than their parents would have had yes. by the time they were 30. now this is this is perfect because um you haven't thought about buying a house i'll tell you that i've thought about it but never it was it actually like a reality but right. i think the big thing um is that student loans are so heavy oh, that yeah. that becomes oh, yeah. problematic too. So like, well, because they said in that article, one of the big issues is these these people can't get the down payment together. Exactly. It's not that they can't. It's not that millennials aren't making enough money to make a monthly payment on I mean, something. If you can afford rent, you can pretty you much can pretty afford much a mortgage. mortgage. Yeah, if not better. Yeah. But it's one of those things where a lot of these people are having you know trouble and they don't have any parents to help them out, no other scenario to help them out like that. Where they can't get together that big chunk of change for the down payment because they're having a problem saving. So it's not even necessarily with an income, but everybody's so far behind. Like, if you took an average kid who's got, you know, $30,000 in student loans, you took their monthly payment on student loans and you put it away for a year, that's a down payment on a house right Absolutely. There. Exactly. You know what I mean? And, like, they signed up for the loans they signed up for, but we were sort of led astray by certain things as well at the time. And a lot of people are sort of in a bad situation, a little bit upside down, and then they wonder why houses aren't selling to young people. This is an interesting point. Uh, so this art, this report, which was uh, based and published on a uh, an eighteen month investigation by a think tank into intergenerational fairness, 
highlights how the drop in home ownership is name. I know right has uh, has highlighted how the drop in home ownership has led to a concentration of wealth among older people. While young people are spending more of their disposable income on rent and finding it harder to save for a deposit, baby boomers are the most likely to be landlords and benefit from the strong rental market the think tank implies. The rich get richer. Ah. See, you can't use that word in the name of the study, fairness, because then all like the older generations are like, oh, well, life's not fair. Yeah, and right. It's like, well, it's easy to say. You're, you won. You got yours. Well, I mean, there's the, uh, like the social mobility fallacy, right, where everybody believed that if we worked hard and saved and made the right choices, we'd be able to move up in class. But more and more, we find that it's more difficult to do so. And with property being traditionally the safest, best investment that you can make without us being able to make that investment and have that security, it's going to be harder and harder for us to get into a position where we actually do switch classes. Well, I think we get into an interesting spot in another 10, maybe 15 years time where, you know, these baby boomers are getting older and older to retirement, like post-retirement, like end of lifetime, where they're trying to sell these houses. And if there's nobody there to buy these houses... I mean, like, what's a what's a two hundred thousand dollar investment in a home worth if you can't find anybody who will pay you it. that money? It's not worth anything. Yeah, then. exactly. If nobody will pay you the money, there's no value. Well, you go back to I go back to what I was saying initially about housing. Uh, if I if I've never thought about buying a house at the age of thirty, never really seriously thought about it, you can be damn sure I've never even like floated the question of when I'll be retiring, right. quote unquote, because. Do you tire from podcasting? Can you just never. Stop? Podcasting <laughs> never sleeps. Yeah. Podcasting never sleeps. <laughs> We're doing this from our walkers. It's just, I feel like, uh, like the idea of owning a house and retirement, uh, and I could try and go on here and find numbers for you, it just seems very distant and unrealistic to me at the age of 30, which is probably not... Do you not... think that's a personal thing? Yeah. How, how much of our generation do you think identifies with that? I... Cliff, you had your hand raised. I think yeah. you want to jump in here. I'm not I too do. far off from there either. Yeah, yeah. I, I really can't even grasp the concept. And, like, my – I know that my parents and, like, my grandmother also kind of struggled with the same thing. Like, I mean, we even have a problem with uh, some people having to choose between medicine and food, you know? Like, there are definite, yeah. definite situations, especially among elderly people, where this becomes problematic. Um, and I don't think it's going to be too much different for us. Hopefully, we become more socially progressive and those problems start to disappear as we get older. We'll see how that works. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting thing because if you're raised in that type of situation, you know, where people are having to make hard choices like that and people know they're never going to retire and stuff like that. If a child is raised in that situation, that's a really tough cycle to break if you've never seen anybody like you don't. You're started with ingrained habits before you're even old enough to be cognizant that are habits that perpetuate what you grew into. And that's the thing that goes across society. You yeah. know what I mean? Kids tend to end up like their parents and families tend to stay the same over long periods of time. But that's a tough thing because how can you even pull that kid who's watched his parents have to make hard choices about food or medicine? How can you even pull that kid into the mindset like, hey, kid, you might be able to retire one day. Yeah. They're too busy with that like emergency mentality. Well, even, even to a certain extent, like, you know... I, I grew up in a, I guess, a middle-class household. It was a single parent, but it was a middle-class household. Um, it wasn't like I wanted for a lot, though. I had a pretty good launching pad as all things go. I had a nice house and parents who cared about me, and I had, you know, we had all the things that you would expect in, like, a typical suburban house. And even with that launching pad, I still feel like I'm considerably farther behind than a lot of my peers who've been in the same situation. And what it really gets me thinking is if you didn't have this launching pad, how unrealistic does the thought of retirement actually seem, right? It can't, 
it just must be a joke almost. Right. You just have to laugh at it almost to a certain extent, right? Yeah. There's a correlation between um, students who have parents that have advanced degrees and how likely they oh, are yeah. to get advanced oh, yeah. degrees. And I think that this is really r- relative to the same conversation because I know that uh, I had almost no financial education, right? So, I'm glad you said that. Go ahead. But that brings up a point I wanted to make. I mean, just the, the concept. So I was probably 26 years old when I started working at a bank and took like a 6 to 12 week, you know, like warm yeah. up, ramp up training course where sure. I really got a strong financial education. But these concepts are not so hard to grasp that they couldn't be taught to people in high school, like I taught, I was taught to like balance a checkbook, but that's not really financial I think, planning. And you no. know what? Even balancing a checkbook—that's the point I was thinking about when you were talking earlier about you know, Sam, grew up middle class, but you still don't know this stuff. It blows my mind that in today's you know American public school systems, that we're not teaching high school age kids from like age fourteen to eighteen, giving these kids a sound financial you know education like i mean you're sitting here and yeah it's great that you're going to spend two weeks learning about the peloponnesian war right and i love history and i love a lot of the other subjects and things but like these kids would be much better served by learning how to save for retirement how to properly calculate what you can take out loans you know how to do your taxes how to apply for a home how to get a mortgage how to do these kind of things what mortgaging is how it works the fact that we don't offer that to these kids and some of the other crap we crammed down their throats is so egregious that it almost makes you start asking questions about whether it's by design, which is a whole other crazy thing. I don't but think it's we, crazy at all. I know you don't. We need, but we need, there should be an education for kids coming out. So when I was 18, I didn't know anything about anything. Right. You know what I mean? Like it took me getting my first like little small store credit card, maxing it out and then not paying it one month yeah. to learn how credit works. Yeah. Just by design. You know what I mean? And there's there should be that education there. Legit never had a credit card. Never once, don't even own like a just in case credit card and the way the system is made if you don't go out sometimes and do that get a credit card then you have no credit and you still can't get a house yeah because no credit is worse than bad credit right so i'll be here at at the headquarters forever folks just renting out forever it's doing all right we're doing all right we're doing fine we're doing fine all right uh that was... I'm going to buy the headquarters and charge you all rent money. <laughs> Kevin uh, is investing. Smart move. They're not making any more land. Uh, so let's... Uh, to the volcanoes. <laughs> let's move on to this week's uh, interview. But before we do, guys, do you ever get bored because you I feel like... I it was a TV commercial. Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> Did you guys ever get bored from doing like the same stuff? Yeah. Man, especially on Fridays... Feels like every Friday is just yeah. the same. I feel like it's really easy to fall in the same sort of rhythm, like, rhythm yeah. right? Like uh, work, Netflix, dinner, fall asleep. Nap. I'm lame. Yeah, nap. yeah I took right. a nap. I took a nap on Friday. Yeah. Uh, and then what? Else, what do we do when we don't do those things? We go out to like the bar, right? How many times do we go out to the bar? Well, they know us all by name. Yeah. Uh, you guys ever think it'd be fun to do something different? Yeah, that would be great. You have something on your mind? I've been thinking a lot about the Adirondack Scenic Railroad. We should do that. We My should golly. do Hey! So last week they had another beer and wine event. We missed that one, but there is another... Wait, you can drink beer or wine on the train? Beer or wine on the train. And you know what? If you don't drink, uh, if you don't like to drink beer or wine, they have a bunch of other different train packages, including like river and uh, rafting trips, plus their uh, their Polar Express trip for the kids, which is... Uh, Quite my, my nieces and nephews oh, are very man. excited. Seems like I'd get real hungry on a beer and wine train. Oh, they have delicious food as well, and they have live music. They on have, the train on a the band? train on the train, my friend. Oh. Is this dangerous? 
No, it's it's as safe as it gets. Wow. I'm telling you. Man, this whole experience must cost a fortune. Oh, no, it's very affordable. Just, really? <laughs> just go to AdirondackRR.com or stop down at 321 Main Street at Beautiful Union Station and bother our good friends, Bethan and Mark, and check out the Adirondack Scenic Railroad. It's more than just a train. All you right. mean to tell me I can take the train? <laughs> no, we're done. The, the Up north. The music. <laughs> Drink beer. <laughs> fed I, with a live band for a reasonable price on a Friday. You can. The theoretical bumper What's music. What's the catch? <laughs> the theoretical bumper music is stop playing. But wait, there's more. <laughs> it's the only way a gentleman travels. It is the only way a gentleman travels. Um, so let's get into this week's uh, interview. Uh, uh, Vincent Petronio is uh, the... Chef, uh, the chef de cuisine at Taylor and the Cook in Bag Square. Uh, I didn't know that term until he presented it to me. I was just calling him the head chef. Uh, we've talked to Tim Hardiman on the show before. Uh, I know we have a little bit of a connection. I, I, I moonlight over at Taylor and the Cook. Cliff, you're down at Utica Bread. We know a lot of these guys really well. Um, but over the years, I find chefs and people who cook to be the most fascinating folks. And, uh, and Vincent was no different. So let's get into my interview with uh, Vincent Petronio and learn about uh, what goes on inside the mind of a chef. Mm-hmm. Is that a, what is that a ranger or Ford? Yeah, that's Ford? my grandfather's Ford Ranger. <laughs> Can I tell you, I have a weird uh, soft spot in my heart for uh, like only the front seat small cab pickup trucks. <laughs> yeah. I find something very like romantic about that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Just, I used, well, I used to stop in New York City whenever I would see this is really vague Nissan trucks. Do you remember mm-hmm. the Nissan like Marty McFly used yep, to have the Toyota yep. knockoff of? Dude, those were my jam. That's yeah, my grandfather's always had him. He had a Mazda when I was growing up with a cab. Mazda with a cab? Not, two seat, like just enough room for you and the dog. Everyone else can go. <laughs> that's go all that matters, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. And you came in here from Deerfield? Yep. Is there some... I feel like I'm missing out on Deerfield because I know so many people who have... who, Especially people at the restaurant mm-hmm. and people just I know casually who've been on the show who live in the Deerfield area. Sell me on what I'm missing on Deerfield. Is it just far enough away from the city where you have more land, it seems like? Or? Yeah, you know... I, we looked at Clinton, we looked in New Hartford, we looked everywhere, and those towns are all all great. Yeah. But, you know, growing up in Holland Patton, like, I wanted a rural feel. I needed at least an acre. I'm big, you know, being as much into the prep- preparation of food, I'm also into the production of food. Right. So it's more of a hobby. You know, I have a comp, but I have enough, I have a little bit over an acre, so I have big gardens, room for fruit trees, uh, a compost pile, mm. friendly neighbors, real quiet, but then I'm also five minutes away from the right. North Utica, from Riverside Shopping Plaza. Sure. So, like, if... Emmy needs to run out and grab groceries, or if I want to pick up a pizza for dinner because we're just we've just been doing work all day, it's like just far enough away from the city that like you get that country feel. Yeah. But um, you're ten minutes north yeah. of, of the heart of Genesee Street and the revitalization. My family has a camp in Boonville. I always felt mm-hmm. that same way. We're not in Boonville proper. We're on the Black River. Uh, but it was nice because you're far enough out in the woods where you got mm-hmm. some river, you got some land. Yeah. But if you need to go to the store, the Big M is like five minutes away. Not that I'm trying to go hang out no. at the Big and, M. You know, we have to. I guess we have to see what happens. I'm, I'm not as 
I'm not up to date as up to date on it as I probably should be as in the past year. But with the Nano coming in and Marcy, like I just oh, yeah. I felt like you know Deerfield Marcy north oh, of yeah. the city is is going to start really picking up. So Nano. that's the place to be. That's that's what I was looking at when I when I bought there. So if you folks are investing in futures, especially real estate, <laughs> take Vincent's word for it. Uh, Deerfield. Uh, and again, we're here with Vincent. Is it Petronio? I, I said it in the intro was Petronio. I hope Petronio. that's right. Yep. Um, and Vince, just very quickly, uh, what is your title? Are you the head chef? I would be uh, chef de cuisine. Chef de cuisine. So we're a small kitchen, um, and so the titles, the old classical French titles, don't necessarily always mean the same right. thing that they used to. But in a brigade, brigade system, you have an executive chef, usually then an executive sous chef, who is basically like the right-hand man. Right. And then you have the chef de cuisine, and the chef de cuisine and executive sous are usually pretty equal. Sometimes mm-hmm. executive sous is a little ahead, but the chef de cuisine would be the highest person in the kitchen other than the executive chef that deals with the production preparation mm-hmm. menu development of food really it's it's the the chef the the executive who's in charge of the food that goes out of the kitchen less administrative more production uh from my end um and i think i've talked about it briefly on the show that i do moonlight at the restaurant so it's mm-hmm. not we can we can talk about the restaurant uh you, you're, you're over at taylor and the cook i'm mm-hmm. there two days a week and i really do feel like i see every plate that pretty much comes off the the marker, I feel like, has to go past you beforehand. That's a lot of pressure, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, we call that the pass, where everything funnels from the sides of the kitchen towards the center, mm-hmm. and then I'm generally involved in the, in the plating. So, hmm. you, you've, you know, when I started, I was much more involved in the cooking of, of, sure. of the actual food. Now I'm, you know, I'm doing finishing and plating and making sure that every plate that I look at is up to Taylor and the Cook's quality and standards and perfect before it goes in the window, and then I hand that over to, to you guys in the front of the house. Uh, and it's funny to me because I think about the hierarchy of, of, of cooking in general, and, and you can correct me on this if I'm, if I'm totally wrong. It seems like if you are a chef or if you are on that side of the kitchen, uh, as you move farther up in terms of promoting yourself farther up the ranks as you move from sous chef to chef de cuisine, you actually seem to do less cooking than you would normally, right? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you start really low as a as what you would call a stage or a stagiaire, mm-hmm. which, who uh, basically work, they're like unpaid interns, basically work for free, and you're doing really minis- minimal stuff, but then you kind of jump up into this this prep world. Yeah. And when you're a line cook, you're you're doing your knife cuts, you're blanching, you're mm-hmm. roasting, you're, 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 and then you move up to proteins and you're, you know, trussing and mm-hmm. breaking down meats and you're doing all this things that really help these things that really take the food from a unprocessed raw product to something that's that's finished and as you move up you're there's other things that also have to be done so you know who's gonna especially in a farm and table restaurant like us who's gonna source that product order it uh, check it in make sure that it's up to up to standards like uh, there's just so many little unseen things between the preparation of a, the cooking of a raw steak to that steak being put on a right. plate, and so the higher you move, you move up in the kitchen, the less you're involved in that actual production, and the more you're involved in that behind the scenes stuff. Sure. That's just as important, sometimes even more important. I think. Uh, well, that's actually it's funny because we keep touching on subjects that I want to talk about, mm-hmm. and I keep pushing my stuff back. But I want to talk about the farm to table thing. Okay. Um, one of the things I've noticed with Taylor and the Cook specifically at my time there, but I, and I assume that this probably is a common factor in most farm to table restaurants. One of the reasons it seems to work as well as it does, at least specifically here at Taylor, is that everyone believes very heavily in the farm-to-table system in the community that it works Mm -hmm. in. I thought about this last week because I was in a large-scale supermarket buying groceries for my house. Mm -hmm. And after I spend so much time at the restaurant listening to you guys talk about the care and preparation that goes into... Uh, the farming and the, the relationships you you guys have with these farms in the community, 
it makes me sort of suspect of buying food in supermarkets. And I wonder, do you even buy anything from supermarkets anymore at this point in time? I mean, I do. I, I, I would love to get to a point where I could go. Yeah. I, the hours that I work don't really allow me to go to all the local area farmer's sure. markets. Um, but I'm very skeptical um, when I do buy. And it's not that the things in the supermarket are bad. It's just that there's so much... Uh, advertising and marketing sure. so like you'll you'll pick up a package and it'll say hillshire farms and there'll be like a beautiful barn and yeah. and green pastures yeah. and like yeah. you look it up online and that's not what it looks like so I, I do you know it takes me about twice the amount of time to shop for groceries as it does my wife yeah. because i pick up everything and i turn it upside down and i see something that i don't like and mm. and, and it's not that that doesn't make me right or better or right. or or knowing more than i just i choose to live mm. and eat a certain way and and shopping in a in a in a supermarket makes that makes that kind of difficult sometimes. I want to bring something up to you. We, this is actually a discussion we had on the podcast a few weeks back, and it was about uh, we do overrated underrated a lot in the show, mm-hmm. and we talked about organic food. Uh, when I was living in New York, organic food was a hot uh, commodity. There were Whole Foods, and even most grocery stores were having uh, a section of organic or or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know. It seems like though the price range for organic food prices it out of the market. That for people who are really out there struggling. Like, so my mom was a single parent, right? Mm-hmm. Now, granted, when I was growing up, organic food was not, like, a thing that was really thought about. But nowadays, if you buy organic strawberries, you're paying $4 more for strawberries. It, it do you, I feel like it's backwards a little yeah. bit, right? Yeah, I have I have a strange opinion and kind of relationship with the word organic. Like sure. The, my, you know, when it first came out, and, and the idea of it really excited me. But, yeah. but as I've read more... Um, Food writers like Michael Pollan have touched on this a lot. Like, it's become big organic. So, like a really classic example that a lot of people use, and he seems like a really great guy. So it's kind of unfortunate that he gets mm-hmm. he gets, you know, people take shots at him all the time. But the guy who owns Stonyfield Yogurt like yeah. sold out to I think Dan, right and like, and he said he doesn't he doesn't classify it as selling out. But like, there's there comes a point when when your organic operation is so big and using organic pesticides, organic herbicides, and and nitrogen is and when you really come down to it, nitrogen is nitrogen. Mm-hmm. So that's going to end. There's a lot of reasons, and that gets into a whole other other topic about why you should eat mm-hmm. organic or not. But like, it has become such a valuable word yeah. that organizations who probably don't have the the planet and your health's best interest yeah. are have started to get involved in it. So the way that I look at it, I guess, when it really comes down to it, is if I have the option to, to buy organic strawberries from California mm-hmm. or strawberries from uh Candela's or Savickis who, right. who might have to use a little bit of conventional pesticides or herbicides only on bad years. Sure. I'd much rather spend my food dollars to somebody who then is going to come into the tailor and the cook and spend them back to me. Right. Or to, and, and to, to see, and I can ask them questions about that strawberries right. than it would be to just buy a label that says organic on it, not know anything about Correct. it, and just shell that extra money out. Okay, cool, cool. Very good. Uh, all right, so let's uh, let's go let's go back for a minute. I do have some other stuff I'd like to bring up to you, but I want to start a little bit about you. So you mentioned you were born in Holland Patton, I want to say. Yeah, I was born at St. Luke's in St. Uh, Luke's in New Hartford, but my parents lived in uh, in Floyd. Actually, Holland Patton was a school district, so Floyd, New York, which mm-hmm. is in between uh, Holland Patton and Rome. So you were at uh, Holland Patton High School then. Yep. What was uh, what was high school events like? What was your what was your mo like back then? Uh Definitely not as much into food as I am now. I mean, I, I was a normal kid. I feel like. Were you I, a punker? Were you a prep kid? Were you? No, like I, a, I played. I played. I guess I don't know. I was never extremely talented at them, but yeah, you probably classify me as a jock. You know, as a I, jock. I had three season sports. You know, <laughs> like I said, never never graded any of them, but you know, I always played sports and, and enjoyed that. You might be a little bit like high school. Well, you might be like me. I played a lot of sports in high school, but was very bad. 
Was, I think, uh, yeah, I think I lettered in like five or six sports just because I played them. Yeah. I just yeah. kept rotating between them. It was, I was never great at any of them, but. I didn't get into soccer until my mid-20s, and it makes me upset because I feel like I wasted a lot of time in high school when I could have played soccer. Yeah. I did football in high school, like mm-hmm. American football, pardon yeah. me, uh, and I just found out that I was too small and <laughs> somewhat cowardly to be yeah. getting I, hit by dudes six foot eight. I had, <laughs> I had to choose between soccer and hockey when I was a kid, and I gave up soccer, and then my senior year, I tried out for soccer yeah. and I, I made the team like just yeah. out of the blue and I was like I can't believe it. and I missed it you know it's you still play anything sport. pickup wise not really I mean if, if there's a ball around I'll always run out and, <laughs> and have a good time but um. uh, so after Holland Patton High School uh, you went to college where'd you go uh, I started at Dickinson College which is in Carlisle Pennsylvania mm-hmm. um, I majored in philosophy Ooh. and then biochemistry and then biology hmm so philosophy, biochemistry, yeah. biology. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. <laughs> it, well, it's kind of funny because what I, I had heard, I think you had mentioned to me before that you you had a chemistry, uh, a biochemistry degree. Mm-hmm. And initially, when I heard that, I was like, "That's kind of weird that you would have a chemistry, a bio, biochemistry degree, and then well, get into yeah, no, well, not a degree, but I was, or, I, I never finished, but I, I did start. Well, but I had you know like something like fifty or six credits, so I was I was two years into well to my bachelor's. So I guess my question was, with the biochemistry degree, what was your initial career arc? What career? did you want to do with that? Oh, medicine, medicine, pre med or hmm. some uh, research, medical research. Yeah, sure. I was I was really I'm really big into the natural world, and sure. and so my love of natural food. And farmer table cooking kind of mm-hmm. evolved out of that. Well, the more and more I thought about it, though, the biochemistry and the biology probably plays a lot into the the job you're in now. There's probably more connection to it now than Abs- you probably you know, gave credit a- to, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, telling my parents that I wanted to leave, you know, a sub Ivy League school with a pre med pre med program and ninety eight percent ninety eight percent med school placement, <laughs> and go to the Culinary Institute of America and and study. You know, the culinary arts was probably the hardest thing that I had to do in my entire life. And they were super supportive about it. But, you know, I just thought one day, I was like, I love the, I love lab. You know, I love yeah. going in and, you know, organic chemistry lab, you know, people knock or- orgo, but like, I loved it. You know, yeah. you were like, you were mixing inert chemicals together and creating something completely different and, and your yields were important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, and I still noticed, like, I still noticed that my daily things at, at work, like thinking back, like, I remember learning that, you know, you, you always have, like, a 20% yield loss when you're dealing with, like, micrograms in, mm-hmm. in, orgo chem, in orgo chemistry. And so I have my bowl scraper, and I'm scooping out, like, a batter for a cake or something, yeah. and I'm like, I'm not losing 20%. Yeah. You, know what I mean? like, uh, you know, just that, that, that that's those same processes are I use every day. So how long have you been at Taylor specifically? How, have you been there since the beginning? No, uh, it'll be three years on October 4th. Okay. So two and some two and some good change. Two years, three quarters. Uh so uh, Tim has been on the show before, Tim Hardiman, our, our boss, mm-hmm. uh, and he was a great interview. Um, I haven't had any waiters on the show yet. Uh, my whole career in the hospitality industry, or whatever you want to call it, uh, has been in the waiting sector, front of house, mm-hmm. whatever you want to refer to that whole sector of yep. that job as. Yet over the years, I've found, and this is maybe just me, I don't know about everybody, I feel like I've always related more to the chefs and the guys in the back of the house than I did with the front of the house guys. And over mm-hmm. the years, I've, um, I've sort of continued feeling that way. Do you ever feel like there's a disconnect? Not that Taylor... Uh, Taylor, I don't notice it because it's so small, but what's it like? Do you notice a disconnect sometimes between front of house and the and the house in the back? Uh, yeah, like you said, really not so much at all at Taylor and the Cook. Uh, Tim, Chris, and Melissa have really fostered a fantastic environment oh, no, where... Dude. where the, but, yeah. but in general, in the industry, yeah. I mean, there is... You know, uh, there is an us versus them mentality, you know, that 
Yeah. Um, the, the the different ways in which the mm. and, and it looks like to, it looks like to maybe it, maybe it's changing in the few, in the next ten or twenty years, but mm. the different ways in which the front and the back of the house are compensated, the That's different a, the different structures, yeah. the different way that they're run, the different hours they work have always kind of led to resentment on both sides, jealousy right. on both sides, and you know, well, I saw it a lot in New York City. That was very common, especially it, in big time like uh, large scale restaurants where there's yeah. lots of waiters yeah. and lots of staff, and there is that disconnect because you live in a world of just the waiters. Yep. And the only time you ever go back to the kitchen it's is when if there's, there's a problem. When there's a problem, and right. then someone's mad at you, you're mad at them, and yeah. And, and, and yeah, but. The nicer places that I've worked in, you don't, you don't. Everybody really, really is on the same team. Like, um, a lot of places will eat like a family meal together, in which yeah. everybody sits together oh, and yeah. discusses the, just, just discusses the night. And like, well, I actually, important. you know, not to go too, you know, inside baseball on this, but I think it actually helps that the kitchen at Taylor and the Cook is right out there and mm-hmm. visible, and you are connected. Like, it's nice to be able to look up and see you and the lads behind behind the the, the ovens there. Because I know things are moving, and I don't have to feel like I have to run into the back and find mm-hmm. somebody. But with you guys too, you guys are so good. I, I just trust. <laughs> uh, I just trust that you guys will get it done. And I wanted to say it was tough for me to to, to bring you in here because uh, I I wanted to do any of the shows, mm-hmm. and I talked to everybody, and I was like, "Who do you think's the one to do?" And they said, "Bring bring Vincent. Vince is the guy." But I also don't want to downplay the great work that I feel like uh, Jeff and Cody and, oh, and Robbie and Jimmy and all the dudes in the back do there. Like, it's such a well-oiled machine back there. And that's really something I hope that – I don't think customers, when they come in, pay that much attention to those kind of things. But that's that little magic place that no, makes you everything – yeah. yeah. You know, I always say that, like, those small things – Yeah. Almost all of our customers, 99%, and even in a large food market like New York City, maybe it'll only be, like, you know, 85%. But – They'll never notice. They'll never know what's different, but they'll know that when they come to the table and the cook, they they have a meal, they pay for it, they leave. The next day, they're like, "Man, I can't wait till I go back." They won't be able to tell you why. It'll be better service. It'll be fat. It'll be hotter food. It'll be better quality ingredients. It'll be it'll be uh, the well-oiled mach- machine that allows us to do um, way more intricate preparations yeah. because everybody trusts each other and can sure. and can lean on each other. They won't necessarily be able to see that. But they'll, but they'll just be something. They'll know that it's better, and so that's really the philosophy that I really like to grip on. That like, I can't expect the people that I'm serving to 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 be as knowledgeable about food as I am. I've dedicated sure. I've dedicated the past decade of my life to it, but they'll know it's better. They won't know why, but they'll just know it's better, and that's what I'm shooting for. Well, it's, with food too, I think quality really it really comes through. Uh, I think about it a lot with Italian food. I grew up in an Italian household, oh, uh, partially Italian household, and we made a lot of Italian food. And you make a lot of sauce. If you make when you make 100,000 batches of sauce over 30 years, mm-hmm. you really learn that not much changes except the actual quality of the ingredients that goes in. And once you pay more attention to that, you mm-hmm. can sort of pinpoint the things that make something special. That's right? And that's something that's big, uh, largely important to the tail, to the tail and the cook and other farm table restaurants is that when you do food that's a little bit simpler, like mm-hmm. a tomato sauce can have as little as like three or four ingredients, yeah. each one of those ingredients matters a lot. so much more. If you're doing an Indian awesome. curry spice there's a hundred spices if one of them's not great probably be fine but if there's uh you know bread or sauce you know or 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 a piece of protein like there's there's just minimal amount of ingredients and so each one of those ingredients has to be right at its pinnacle in order to to make the whole dish it would be remiss of me to not ask you a little bit about dan barber 
Um, I, uh, I watched an episode of Cooked, I think it was, on Netflix last week about Dan Barber and his restaurant, which I'm totally blanking on the name of right uh, now. Well, he has Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is uh, a very, very high-end place, and then Blue Hill in the city, which is also very high-end, but just a little bit more, mm. a li- I'd call it, I guess, a little bit ca- more casual. Uh, Tim has openly, Tim Hardiman, again, yep. our boss, has openly talked to me many times about how much he loves Dan Barber, and he mentioned that I should at least bring up to you what it was like to, uh, ask you what it was like to work with him and what it was like, to, what did you learn from that experience? Uh, I basically learned everything that makes me really? a, who I am today in like an eight month externship, wow. an internship there. Uh, it was simultaneously the most terrifying and exciting mm-hmm. eight months of my life. I mean, I don't even think for the first couple of months, I didn't even really appreciate who sure. he was, you know, yeah. like I, we had talked about farm to table. I knew that he had great restaurants. My, the chefs that I had for my professor professors had highly recommended this place and said, you know, you know, these are the, these are the, you know, the, the best chefs in New York city. These are what they're doing, but getting there and just seeing the kitchen and seeing what they did every day and, and, and all the ingredients that I saw, you know, the, 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 the most wild thing, the really thing that brought me around to farm a table is that, and back to that, like love of the natural world is that, so many ingredients that I used, mm. we walk by all of us every single day on the street and don't know. I was I was picking daylily flowers, like those tiger lilies you see on the side of the road. Those oh, yeah. are those are delicious, right? Like I, you would you would never know like that that this his mind for discovering yeah. wild foods, foods that people have forgotten, and really highlighting them is just and the and the work and and then my work ethic was tripled, I think. Yeah. And I mean, because it had to be. Because if I didn't, there was, there was, you know, he, he runs a, a more classical French kitchen where yeah. you're afraid if you don't do your job right. Oh. And it's funny <laughs> because I get afraid as a waiter sometimes because I, honestly, I, I tell people at the table all the time, I probably shouldn't say this, I tell people all the time, I used to think I knew about food. I'm a pretty good casual cook around the house. Mm-hmm. I grew up Italian family, Middle Eastern family. I learned food was important to us, but I come to work at Taylor two, three days a week from like basically moonlighting at this point in time. And I'm constantly blown away by how much I learn just by watching you guys doing just the casual stuff you do. And it, and once you see how easy it is to make something wonderful out of, out of simple ingredients, Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of addictive. I understand why it's so easy to build up this real love and appreciation for what you guys do. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, before we get into the the more casual portion, I just want to ask um, when I talk when I think about food for me, I was a big Bourdain guy. I read uh, Kitchen Confidential; that was like a big jumping mm-hmm. off point for me. What was like? The, was there like a, a breaking out moment for you? Like, who inspired you to really look at cooking as a, or being a chef as a profession? It's really I, I think about this a lot. Actually, yeah. I don't really know when it happened. I just I I have. I guess if there was like a strong male role model that that cooked a lot, it would be my grandfather. Sure. And it didn't. It wasn't that he cooked a lot, but there were just certain things that he always cooked. And you know, it's the the dried Italian sausage in the oil. So, he did sausage rolls God, and so you know tomato pies. His you know his uh, his uncle was owned Devito's Bakery. Yeah. Okay. Um. So he, you know him and my father used to tell me about how like they would go in there and my dad would dig through the breadcrumb basket and look for the heels and. He, you know, my, you know, my, I guess I don't even know, great, great uncle would take the bread out and flip it upside down to the bottom would get crispy out of the, out of the loaf. Like, and just hearing all these really romanticized stories. And, and I'm sure they were slightly embellished. I mean, you know, 50 years later, but I guess that that would be the only thing that I could really point to yeah. is like, you know, I, just having a couple strong male role models in my life that, that loved food and loved cooking and loved, you know, 
that you know domestic feeling that, that, sure. that you know when my grandfather makes sausage roll and a pepper salad which is his his homemade uh cured cherry peppers with pepperoni and cheese and onions and olive oil and like mm. he would make that and then a tomato pie and like everybody everybody in the family just runs to the table and there's every you know really special moment in my life has had some of that food around and i think subconsciously over time it just kind of i just kind of realized that food is happiness in a lot of ways did you uh did you grow up eating eating dinner with your family as a kid yes uh both both my parents worked my dad always worked full-time my mom worked part-time to full-time and but she always insisted that yeah as many times as often and most of that that most times that was seven days a week dinner was together as a family and we talked and I mean, there was. I'm sure there was times in my life where I was resentful of sure, having to not. Everyone was, I think. But in hindsight, it was. Yeah. You know, it's something that I'm very grateful to her for insisting. And she always cooked. You know. Oh yeah. Even I, with the even with even with a work. You know, even if it was a, mm. a 30 minute pampered chef meal, like she would cook and it, it would be fresh food. As you get older, it's something you appreciate. My mom was a, a first grade teacher, mm-hmm. and uh, after a certain point in time, she was a single parent. So, and she, you know, every every day it was important to her that she made dinner for her children and the family and it it just sort of I think if you watch that growing up if that's something that's instilled at you early on you just have a different uh you have a different feeling for what food actually means mm-hmm. on a naturalistic standpoint yeah. um and also I think you say things when you're around food that you wouldn't normally say to people otherwise you can be really honest with your family when you're eating dinner oh, something about that sharing food together allows for an interesting level of honesty in conversation it's, it's you know, if you really, really get, like, in-depth and philosophical about it, I mean, it's something that's kind of, it's one of, like, the three main things we yeah. need, you know, food, shelter, and water, and something yeah. that, if you really look at, you know, what what is familial love, I mean, the preparation of food and, and you know, yeah. taking something that you could otherwise just eat for yourself, energy that you, yeah. could, that you could use for yourself, but putting more of your own energy in and then sharing that with other people mm. is... is evolutionarily like in some ways like a negative to yourself but benefits your family your your your, you know genetic line and your species as a whole and and that's i think in some ways why food is can be so powerful um you know i mean i think i love it i love it i think i I think you're spot on actually i i relate to a lot of that it's kind of interesting actually uh all right little lightning round questions these will be a little easier uh a little bit less in depth first one how do you take your coffee black just straight black. Straight black. I like it's, it. It's coffee. What are you gonna? I mean, really? I mean, it's different roasts, different beans, single single origin. What are you gonna? I think you're the first person. You might be the first person that asked that question who didn't have some elaborate answer that was like, oh, I put honey in milk or I put this. And that. It's black. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, give me one book, one film, uh, one TV show, or one album you're currently listening to, reading, or watching. I just started watching Deadwood. Deadwood? You just started watching Deadwood? I know. I've had HBO for years. Oh, dude, I'm so excited for you. That's but one of my... I think, I'm, I think I'm five episodes in, oh, and dude. it's, oh, it's fantastic. It's, that, was a, that one snuck up on me. I had HBO, <laughs> I had HBO go for a long time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I think Sopranos is the greatest show that's ever existed. Yep. Uh, shout out to former guest Thomas D., who I got in a fight on Facebook with about this last week <laughs> because he didn't like their accents. Weirdo. I'm, I'm going to yell at him about that in public. Uh... But Deadwood snuck up on me. Deadwood might be the best unfinished television show that ever exists. I love that show. I'm so glad. Oh, good answer. <laughs> uh, similarly, what was the first car you ever had? I had a, let's see, 2005 PT Cruiser. Yes! That my grandmother left me. Ah. Damn. Damn. <laughs> I love that car. You oh. know, there was like a table in the back and the hatchback. 
speakers, pull out into the middle of the woods, build a bonfire. It was, it was fun. When I used to live in New York, I used to come back up to Utica to hang with the boys and, mm-hmm. and carouse and do my thing. And I'd have a car. And my mom had a PT Cruiser, and I used to have to steal it when I would come home. We used to call the PT Loser. Yep. Uh, she used to get mags. It would smell like cigarettes when we'd mm-hmm. be done. She'd just trouble the worst. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, with your first car, uh, when you drove that first car out to your first concert, who was the first concert you went to go see? Uh, you know, I didn't really go to a lot of concerts, but I think the first concert that I really drove to go see with my friend was brand new, and I saw him in Burlington. Ooh, we can talk about that after the podcast. <laughs> I think uh, my co-host Kevin just went to see them uh, with Modest Mouse a couple days ago. Awesome. Um, if, uh, let's say you, you committed some terrible uh, miscellaneous crime, and they were putting you to death, and you're on death row, and you have a last meal... One drink, one dinner, one dessert. What are you taking with you? It's tough. It's a tough one. Drink, meal, and dessert. Drink, meal, and dessert. My drink would be Mackenzie Rye. Nice. Served down with a twist of lemon. Excellent. My last meal uh, would be a uh, ground short rib burger with uh, house-made brioche sesame bun. Classic. It has to, I have to be dying in the summer because it's got to be fresh tomatoes. <laughs> Housemade, housemade chai aioli, French fries. You push it back till August. <laughs> push it back till August. Just push me back. Tomatoes are ripe. <laughs> and for dessert, I'm pretty simple. I think it would just be, uh, just uh, like a sour cherry ice cream, like wild sour okay. cherries, just in an ice cream. Uh, and outside of the tailor and the cook, this, I don't ask this one normally. But I'll ask you, what's your favorite restaurant to go to? Locally or to- or anywhere, in general? Anywhere in general. I I have this is a this one has a lot of angles unfortunately. I know it's kind of loaded too. I it's mean, a loaded question. <laughs> so many ways to go. It's a hard one. Um, you know I don't and I really don't eat it out as much as I as I really want to. But I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you know for all the really intense high end preparations that I yeah. work with every day. I love Shake Shack. Shake Shack? I love Shake Shack. Shack. I mean, sometimes like sometimes on the weekends, I'm just so exhausted <laughs> from staring at foie gras and like and local farm vegetables that I just I want like a really high end, good quality and and local locally sourced, but just burger, fries, and wings. It's so what I want. I'm so glad you said that. And I'm gonna tell you why. I used to work at the restaurant in Times Square, and a lot of the chefs, uh, older Spanish dudes, not making a ton of money, nice mm-hmm. dudes. But I always asked them at the end of the day, like, what are you gonna make when you go home? And they're like, I'm going to the bodega, and I'm picking up something from the bodega that's already prepped, because the last thing I want to do is hard. even cook any item at all. Uh, before I let you go, Vince, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I asked around at the restaurant before I uh, before I did the interview, and I tried to get some questions to ask you from anybody, and nobody really had much for you. They didn't want to know what's up with all the show tunes. Do you show have like tunes? some weird show tunes? Fast, you know, I don't even know. I I did I did do chorus in, in high school, and then I did vocal ensemble for like three of the four years, which was basically like you know the vocal ensemble like sang yeah. and the jazz band played and we did like dinner dances and stuff. Can like you that. sing? No, terrible, terrible, terrible. But I still do it. I mean, all day, every day. I, mean, I the know people I that I, the people that I work you get with are just miserable. Music stuck in my head at the restaurant, and then to, yeah, all the time. And, well, that's a game that we play. Like Jeff brought up when Jeff, the the sous chef, when he first came, he brought up a game. It's like, oh, you get a point if you get something, a song stuck in somebody else's head. Oh, and I, I don't think he wants to play anymore because I'm, I'm just, I'm the best at it. He's mad at me because I've still yet to watch one episode of Game of Thrones. He's like, you won't even talk to me until I watch one episode. Uh, Vincent, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so um, much. And I will catch you later this week. Absolutely. I would imagine. Uh, folks, we'll be back to the show in just a moment.
Yeah. And thank you again. Vincent Petronio, if you want to see some of his work, stop down at Taylor the Cook. Order the pork belly, because that's yeah. the jam. Oh, my yes. God. Oh, my God. I've never been to Taylor the Cook. Still? Yeah, still. It's, uh, it's, it's so, uh, it's tough for me You're to, like. struggling. Well, it's tough for me to put it over, because I feel like it's, I, I you know, mm-hmm. I spend enough time there, I know all those people, it's going to definitely sound disingenuous, right? Yeah. If I sit here and I put like them over the, the top. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And we just did a whole interview with uh with vincent and if you listen to that interview you can obviously tell how brilliant and smart and talented he is as a chef i think it speaks for itself i'll just say this um i know that taylor and the cook as a farm to table restaurant um it may be uh like my, my mom has a tough time with it like it's some of it she doesn't know all the items right. on the menu right mm-hmm. there's a touch um, of intimidation there's a touch there. of intimidation yeah, for sure but i'm so happy that someone in this region is doing this type of restaurant it's important that someone's doing what they're doing like responsible yeah. you know i mean like i just think i'm glad somebody's doing it it may not always be everybody's exact take if you're a steak and potatoes kind of guy but the level of food truly yeah. is a cut above it it's a cut above yeah. right you know they have think... a great steak and potatoes they yeah. really do there you, go. <laughs> you know what i think it is for me i don't go out to eat dinner a lot I'll yeah. go out for lunch. I'll go out for like breakfast, brunch. I'll go out during the day. I don't. I don't tend to go out to like dinner. Taylor Cook seems very much like a dinner place. Uh, I love to go to dinner, but I don't always love to go to fancy dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, see, I dig going out to eat. I think that's. I like going out to eat. Yeah. I just feel like specifically the dinner meal, the later more evening meal, always tends to be a more home based meal for me personally. I think because Taylor is so high end and the farm to table like mentality of the restaurant. Uh, I feel like I don't like to go in there for casual stuff on my own, uh, because right. for me, like it means I got to dress up and put like nice clothes. That's like all in my head, right? Yeah, like, I, it's totally. I don't think yeah, anyone right. would care if I right. came in dressed like normal, but I feel like I need to get worked up for it. Whereas a lot of times when I get home from work, I'm just trying to jam some Wendy's in my mouth, like I may or may not have done <laughs> earlier today, um, and that's a whole other game. But uh, let's talk about food, guys. We we had Vincent on here. We had I asked him a couple questions that I don't normally ask. Uh, the interview subjects because he had this this you know food uh, headspace. So I'm gonna pitch a couple of these questions at you. This one may be a little morbid. Uh, you have been convicted of some terrible crime and now you are on death row. Your last meal is coming up. You get one drink. Whoa, whoa, whoa. who'd you talk to? Yeah, well, you listen. know. <laughs> I know. I got eyes on top of eyes, my friend. Uh, so uh, for your last meal, you can get one drink, one entree, and one dessert. What's the last thing you're taking in before you say goodbye? Uh, so for me, it's got to be something I've never had before. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Hey. This guy. Yeah, it's got to be something I've never had before. Um, and that's when I do go to Taylor to tie it in. I just try to order stuff I've never had. Yeah. Um, never had lamb. Ordered it. Never had duck. That's pretty on brand for you, actually. Now that I think about it, that seems very much like you to be like, let me get one more experience under the belt yeah. before I go. Yeah. That's wild card. I'll tell you, you know what's great? And I'll be like, no. But I'd like to. <laughs> <laughs> so um, not a f- no nostalgia. You're like, no, only new experiences uh, nostalgia's for the week. Unless it's like a cake with a key in it or like a file to get me out of there. I don't want it. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Yeah, that's what I want for my last meal is a cake with a lock with a lock pick exactly. in it. Right? With the exactly. antidote to the lethal injection. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a cake with a gun in it. I bet you I couldn't uh, order that one. They wouldn't let me have it. What about you, Kev? Um... I would, man, I could make a case for so many different kinds of food and so many different things, but I feel like the, the one thing my mind always comes back to for the entree 
if you could just get me like a nice like beef pot roast with gravy, a bunch of dinner rolls or like soft Italian bread with like maybe some mashed potatoes if I'm allowed to pick potatoes. Mm. And then you give me uh, like a, a cherry crisp probably, not a cherry pie, but a cherry crisp uh. hot with some vanilla ice cream for my dessert. And then just a, an entire bottle of probably the Lacavulin 16. Hey, Scotch yes. to just get right after we it. Just do this. I think no, we wait. should just do this. Anyway. Wait. Make our last meals a reality. Yeah, are we, we doing do death row? Are we good. grocery shopping? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Depending on what supermarket, it's not that much different. Right? <laughs> hey, oh. um, Shout out to uh, supermarkets. <laughs> supermarkets in the area. Yeah. Um, so if I'm going last meal, I'm actually going uh, very on brand for me. Drink uh, Mexican Coke in the glass bottle. Just. Come on, I know what I like. I'm not. I'm not a. I'm a simple man with simple tastes. Uh, entree, lamb and chicken combo yeah. over rice from Halal Bros. Halal <laughs> guys in Manhattan on 14th and You're second. You're not wrong. That's Take a pretty a good case. Oh my that's a, god, that's a make a pretty good case for the lamb I, and chicken, the white sauce. I like to think of myself as a guy who knows a lot about food. I said it during the interview with Vince. I go into a restaurant at Taylor every day and I learn something new, and right. it always blows my mind. Like they'll do some stuff. They're like, ah, we just mix these two root vegetables together and now it's magic and you're like oh wow this is crazy but for me at the end of the day i always go back to halal lamb and chicken over rice something about protein and rice with the white sauce and the magic white sauce i don't understand the weird magic that exists uh and then in dessert i feel like the on-brand answer for me as a twin peaks guy is a slice of cherry pie and i do love a slice of cherry Would you pie. even enjoy it, or would you just enjoy having that in the footnotes of your <laughs> footnotes. anticipated biography? Yeah. Footnotes is important. Uh, you know, what I, I feel like for you, for dessert, you just eat a whole bag of like some sort of sweet and sour gummy candy. Yeah. <laughs> just a hundred shape for sure. Haribo diet. Haribo you know fizzy do? colas. Maybe just maybe just like a box of creamsicles. <laughs> like uh, like twelve, just twelve creamsicles in a row. No, you making some frozen thin mints. Frozen thin mints. Oh, can I just man. do an all dessert? I might just banana meal? cream pie. Wow, you guys are killing me right now. Yeah. I came into the show hungry. See, that's probably that's yeah. what happened when Vincent came in. I've yeah. been thinking about food all. Yeah. My brother made a killer potato salad for the Sullivan family barbecue yesterday. I've got a bunch in the fridge. Help yourself after yes. we get done. Mm. Uh, also, uh, this is another one I threw uh, at Vincent. This is a tough one. If you don't want to answer right off the bat, I get it. Not local restaurant. What's your favorite restaurant ever? I know. The wow. crowd is stunned into silence. Not local. Not local. Well, how far away counts as It not can local. be local. Hello, guys. Hello, guys in New York City, right? All right. No. I got one. I got one. Uh, Mexican Radio. There's one in... Uh, yep. I know where that is, you know, yeah, yeah. Yep. There's one in the city. There's yep. one in Hudson. I believe there's one in Schenectady now. Yeah. Uh, any of you guys yep, get the opportunity, please check it out. It's great Mexican-American fusion food. I'm going to have stuff. to say uh, kind of a standard answer, I think, probably, but Dinosaur Barbecue. They've always got killer beers on yep. draft. They've always got delicious barbecue. Dinosaur Barbecue is my favorite restaurant that's not in the local, local yeah, area, I think. for sure. Man. Oh, I'm so tempted to just keep saying halal, guys. Uh, you would never be wrong. I would never be wrong. I would say, I think... Hmm. There was another... They're both New York places, I guess, too. Uh, there was a place, though... There is a local tie-in, though. Uh, there's a place in uh, on 7th and 1st in Manhattan. It's run by a gentleman from New Hartford. I cannot remember his name for the life of me. It's going to drive me nuts. The place was called Upstate. It was an oyster and craft beer bar that served nice. seafood. And every time I would go in, 
I would talk to the gentleman. I would ask for a Saranac, which they only sometimes have, <laughs> right? But the fact that I asked for it, he would know that I was from upstate, and he would always go out to his car and presumably hand me a Utica club. I can't, I can't validate that as fact or story, right? Uh, but every time, and whenever I would bring a date there, they would be impressed that I knew the guy who owned this restaurant, and he would bring me Utica clubs from his car. <laughs> so upstate. In, in the Lower East yeah, Side, if anybody's of traveling, uh, you gotta like seafood though. Like I feel like I couldn't take like you don't really do oysters, Kev. Like uh, oysters are fine. I like like if you put oysters like on a skewer or like you wait a minute, wait a minute, oysters. I was thinking of scallops. Now fuck oysters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever had an oyster. Really? Maybe. Yeah. Oyster is uh, that's like. That's like first world food. Like you really gotta like have money to just be eating a ton of oysters. First world, yeah. Like it's just expensive for what you get, and it's not super filling, but it really does. When you're eating oysters, you're like, I really do feel like the king of the world. I feel like Neptune. I feel like the king of the world anyway. Is that why you're eating it on dates? I gotta be honest. Every food I eat is an aphrodisiac because I love (laughs) dating so much. Like anytime I eat food, I just love the The world. Give me a handful of sour cream and onion chips because it's fully torn. Well, look, look. (laughs) Actually, I'm glad you. I'm glad you said that. To be totally honest, because uh, this ties into something I brought up with Vincent as well, which is, uh, and I'll ask you guys first. When you guys were growing up, did you eat dinner with your family? Was this like a thing you guys did on the regular, or was it not something more that was important? When, more when I was younger than when I was older. Um, once we got a little bit older, and uh, like I don't know where my dad became the primary. Like I'm also cooking dinner as well as working thing. Yeah. When we lost my mom, and also all of us kids getting older, like having practices and friends' houses and clubs and activities and this time and that time, it got harder to sit down at the dinner table. But when I was a young kid, I remember we did all the time. Mm. Uh, Vince had mentioned to me that he ate dinner with his family all the time, every night, and it was an important part of their uh, family upbringing. Uh, that was a big part of my mom's uh, upbringing as well, me and him. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I, and it's something you don't really appreciate as a kid, certainly, and especially nowadays, because even back then, I just wanted to watch TV the whole time. There were no cell phones, there was no computers, but you still just wanted to watch TV while you were eating dinner. And it was a struggle for my mom to make us understand like no why it's important this time is important that we don't sit down and watch tv Uh, and the point i was going to make is i feel like there is a special magic that exists when uh you mix conversation and eating food together something about eating food in the company of other people allows for a more open flow of conversation and thoughts i feel like i have nothing to quantify no, that. i think, no, you're, right. For I think sure. you're right about that uh, i just feel like some of the conversations i had in my family back then would not be easily replicatable in other situations so yeah. i don't know yeah i um I, I was very lucky because my mom used to let me eat with the simpson family uh, uh yes yeah which i really really appreciated um but i found that now it makes me extremely grateful when i do eat with my family yeah it's not something i take for granted well um, you you love a group meal too like you're always one thing. of the first ones to you let's know cook this a big about dinner me. and have yes. everybody together you know this about me yeah. yeah and i don't know if it was because it just wasn't the thing that we did and we did sometimes but sure. we didn't it wasn't like a thing that we did yeah. every single day um but but yeah, you guys know this about me. Like I'm all about the potluck, or just show up and we cook and everybody meals, eats. Yeah. yeah, we're about that. We're about you know a couple times a month over here on that. So, uh, and it's funny too because uh, I'm not good at the communal meals, but I'm good if I'm just cooking for everybody. Right. I don't like to bring something, but like I'd rather have like an event. Like I'm gonna cook the whole thing, right? 
That's just me personality. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't like to bring a dish. I had that family barbecue yesterday. Yeah. Everybody was like, had to bring a dish. And realistically, we had so much. I mean, we had more food than we could have fed 10 times our family sizes when we got a big family. But yeah, I was having, there was like a little bit of anxiety. And I ended up making something kind of weird. I made like a spicy peanut pasta salad, like yeah. a sort of Thai food kind of thing. And it mm. came out all right. It was the first run at it. But the whole time you're sitting there, like, what can I make that everybody will be into that'll hold for a day? That you can like actually serve up. I'd rather if I'm gonna take care of the food, I'd yeah. rather cook all the food for everybody. You know what I mean? So here's the thing: I really love to cook, and I don't do it a ton. Um, but same, it, it suits I... my personality because it allows me to like set priorities and timing so yeah. that everything arrives on time. Um, I, and I really, really enjoy that. I'm a pretty marginal cook. I would say I'm like a. Six point five out of ten, right? Like I'm a very serviceable. What you may not have in technique, you make up for in hustle. Yeah, I'm a good <laughs> hustler. I'm like yeah, a line. You're, you're, you're a six man cook. Yeah. Uh, I, I, but I do enjoy it. I, there is much like I, my weird therapeutic uh, connection with doing the dishes. I have a similar sort of therapeutic connection to cooking. There's a, there's a nice break from the. Every struggles. time I feel like a jerk about not doing the dishes enough here at the Utica Studio, Sam's like, it's really therapeutic for me. I'm like. Absolved. No, uh, it's true. That, like, <laughs> certain, uh, there are certain ways to make, uh, again, I talk about it all the time, finding little pockets of sanity and well, happiness and in, calm, yeah, in everyday life. Uh, cooking, making your bed, and doing the dishes are all three examples of little moments that sort of make me feel better during the day. Yeah, so. make your bed, folks. Your mother must be so proud. Sometimes. Look at you. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> As the years have gone on. Yeah, now, later. later it's better, yeah. Um, uh, so that's all the food talk we had. Now I'm hungry again. We ate yeah. beforehand. I had one more quick question. Just we do it real fast. I want to know if you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? Like one, and you can be like pretty broad. Like if you say chicken, you could have chicken in all of its oh, different varieties, man. I guess. You know what I mean? If you need to be, but like if you had to eat something, because I feel like this is a no brainer question. Man, right? What's your no brainer? Only one. Pizza. Pizza. Yeah, pizza. So many different style. varieties, so many different toppings. You've got <laughs> in the pan, you've got New York style thin crust, you've got sauce on top, like Oskanich, you've got commercial, you've yeah. got mom and pop, you've got garlic pizza, you've got chicken wing pizza, you've got all so, sorts of pizzas. Yeah. Well, pizza's, yeah, every that's a big right, answer. So, well, pizza's kind of broad, though, so I'll throw another broad uh, argument against that. You can only get one pizza or sandwich. Mm. Sandwich has a billion different qualifying choices, oh, yeah. right? Like, I can't even okay. do that. So I'm going to modify this and just go with what's the food you can't go without? Ooh. Okay, you know what I mean? Because if, if cheese. Pizza, right. okay. The answer is cheese, cheese for me. I've tried very hard to cut dairy out yeah. of most of my diet. Otherwise, yeah. cheese will never go away. I'm yeah. Cheese is not bad. Out. Cheese is a pretty good answer. Mm. Um, Sandwiches, probably. Sandwiches? I love, I love a sandwich, man. Yeah, you couldn't live without like I so. Love a like, sandwich. just all sandwiches disappeared, you'd be devastated. Every kind of thing that counts as a sandwich, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I can see. I can maybe. see that. Yeah. yeah, mine's very specific. Uh, I would be just in shambles if there were no more peanut butter. I just okay. don't want to live butter. Yeah. with no more peanut butter. Okay. There's times where there's no peanut butter in my house, and I'm like up in the middle of the night, like I should walk to Price Chopper. I should go get some. At a different time <laughs> in my life, I used to say that I could have been a vegetarian as long as I could just eat pasta for every meal. But now as I get farther away, I don't know if I'd want to eat pasta all the time. I could definitely be a vegetarian as long as I could also eat meat. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, no, I know what you're saying. if there was a way that I could convert to just eating a lot more, like, pasta <clears throat> and mushrooms and stuff, that's fine. But, like, I could never be a vegan because I need cheese and milk and all the eggs and all the yeah. secondary, leather. like, never yeah. vegan. I don't hate leather seeds. <laughs> well. Yeah. You know, I was vegetarian for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. Very. Five years. What was your back. tipping point back over? Like, when did you when did you decide you were like, nah? I started exercising a lot. 
Mm. Like more than I could ever feed myself eating vegetarian food. You just like, you literally needed the calories. I had to. Yeah, I was just and the protein, was getting yeah. smaller. You know, like exercising more and shrinking. I know at least one listener is having a conniption fit hearing you talk about giving up vegetarianism. I'm just gonna throw that out there. Coming right back now. into the fold. I mean, <laughs> look at here. I gave it up. Um, I don't know. I, I I do sort of. We've talked. We talked this a little bit on the podcast that you did. Do you sort of feel like a self-hating meat eater sometimes? Yeah, and yeah, I was gonna bring it up. Yeah. I think that you know one of my goals for the next year or two is to ethically source meat. So mm. I, I'd like to both see something like that. Is, I think any type of like vegetarianism, veganism, it's all extremism to me. Yeah, like yeah. if you've got a huge problem with like the way that you know certain chickens are raised, or as you like should, that, like I fine, think you should. But it, you should like you should still like to just say I'm never ever touching chicken, no matter what so the circumstances, the where it comes from, right. where I am. That's extremism right. to me. Agreed. You know what I mean? Like, I understand when they have an ethical conversation yeah. about, like, what you put into your body and where yeah. it comes from, but, like, to just swear it off forever Bro. seems like... I'd There's a trade-off. I don't want to let it go. Because there is, you know, the thing where, all right, you're not going to eat meat, so you're going to fill your diet with wheat. And so yeah. what's the ethical trade-off on having fields and fields of corn? You know, how does that mm-hmm. tax the planet? And that's that. But I think that the fair middle ground and oh, man, vegetarians are going to go wild. Yeah. But uh, the the fair middle ground is ethically sourcing your meat. Everything in moderation. Yeah. Everything in moderation. And you can't eat a lot of it if you're out there killing it yourself. It's going to be kind of hard. We're getting goats and chickens for the backyard at the Uticast Studios here, folks. Piglet. Uh, so, guys, thanks for joining us on what was a very... Uh, food-heavy episode this week. I uh, think it's time to go eat. It is time to go eat. Uh, next week will be, again, very film-heavy episode. Uh, we're getting hyped up for the Franklin Square film series. Uh, Cliff Montoni, thank you again for joining us. Thank uh, you for having me. And look forward to the untitled Cliff Montoni podcast project episode number zero. Let's get a title out there, huh? Well, I gotta look up and see if Cliff Notes, Cliff's Notes is a real thing. If that's a real thing, we can't use it. Otherwise. I think it's a real thing. You don't know that for sure. Did you look it up? Do you feel like you started clapping too early? No. I never feel like I started clapping. Oh, <laughs> uh, for Kevin Sullivan, uh, my name is Sam Famolaro. We will see you next week.